Hello everyone, before I start, if you'll forgive me, I have a podcast recommendation for you all. It's called the British Food History Podcast. I recommend it to you on the rigorous selection process that I really like it, and maybe you will too. Also, it's a great and rich subject. Most of all, though, I really like the host, who is Dr Neil Buttery, and he really knows what he's talking about. He's an author, a PhD in the subject, he's got a really good blog as well, actually. But the main thing is he's an absolute and total enthusiast, and that, to me, is the heart of independent podcasting. He's doing it because he loves his subject primarily. He's a warm and lovely host. He has lots of really great guests. So Diane Perkis of The People's History of the Civil War fame, she was there, for example. She's now done The People's History Approach to Food. There's one just out on medieval food and one I absolutely loved on school meals. How I laughed at that one and cried just a little bit at the memory of the tubes in school liver. So much yuck. Anyway, it's great. Give it a go on your normal podcatcher, the British Food History Podcast with Dr. Neil Buttery. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello everyone and welcome back to the History of England. Episode 87, Scandal Was Brought Upon the People. So, here we are with a new reign, and by eck, it's a humdinger. If you thought John had a bad reputation, then think again. Until you've read Edward II's report card, you just don't know the meaning of the word reviled. Really, in the bad English king voting category, Edward II leads the pack with Henry VI probably on his shoulder, but John way back in the peloton. Surely, even Edward II has his friends, I hear you ask. Some revisionist historians, maybe, telling us it's all a plot of the chroniclers. Everyone's just out to get him. He's just been misunderstood. After all, that's the way to make your academic reputation. Well, no, he doesn't. The best poor old Edward gets are some reasonable people who would like us to be more accurate about his faults and strengths, rather than just suck up all the poisons that the chroniclers churned out about him. Because none of the chroniclers are fans. Which is a bit unusual for a king, and probably in itself tells us something. Here's a quick flyby of those markers of the Edwardian card. First, we have Ranulf Higdon, author of the Polychronicon. As you'd expect, he's a monk, a Benedictine from Cheshire, born 1280, and lived all the way through to 1364. Now this chronicle formed the basis for many later opinions of Edward, which is why we start here. It's not entirely negative. Higdon paints a picture of a good-looking man, handsome in body and of outstanding strength, so similar to myself, in fact. He complimented Edward's way with words. I've put the description on the website, but here's a taster. 
He was extravagant in his gifts, splendid in entertainment, ready in speech, but inconsistent in action. This is Ranoff trying to do a praise sandwich, albeit an open sandwich. It gets a lot worse, such as, Scandal was brought upon the people, and the kingdom was damaged. However, Higdon also held forth about Edward's hobbies, which for the time were considered slightly odd. Basically, he liked hanging out with jesters, singers, diggers. He liked a bit of boating, some hedging and ditching. Now, of course, perfectly normal now, and I'm sure that, like me, there is nothing you enjoy more than a bit of Saturday morning hedging and ditching. Sadly, these popular leisure activities were considered undeniably odd in the 14th century, especially for a king. So they went down like a lead balloon. One of the problems, shock horror, was that Edward appeared genuinely to like the company of the common man. Now that really wasn't on. Might look nice to today's eyes, earned no brownie points at all back then. Of course, if these things had been part of the picture of a successful king, there would have been nothing but foibles. But in addition to extravagance and inconsistency, Higdon accused Edward of having favourites that caused scandals and moaned about his church appointments. Higdon is reasonably typical. Around these themes, other chroniclers go up and down the scale of negativity without ever crawling into the positive bit of the box. Unusually for the time, we have a lay chronicler in Sir Thomas Grey of Heaton. Grey came from Northumberland and fought for Edward III up until 1355, when he was captured by the blasted Scots. He wrote his Scala Chronica in a Scottish prison. He's not quite as neggy as Ranulf, but not far off. A key theme for him was Edward's inconsistency. Lovely, charming, delightful even, when you had him on his own, but a total nightmare in any kind of public affairs. Plus, of course, the normal accusations about going overboard with a certain individual who will come to. Oh, and yes, Edward was lazy. Now for another one, you would think that if you wrote a book called The Life of Edward II, you'd be keen on your subject, but you would be wrong to so assume. We don't know who the author of this chronicle is, but it's well informed, and it goes up to only 1326, which is quite interesting because that's before Edward's big balloon goes up. Or indeed, before the big red-hot poker went up. Once again, there are similar accusations that Edward spent all his time hobnobbing with his favourites at court rather than the honest toil of kingship. There is a twist here. The life was clear that although Edward was bad, he was no worse than his main adversary, Thomas of Lancaster. Basically, he's saying that the barons and the king were as bad as each other. And so it goes on with most of the chroniclers, Thomas of Otterbourne, the Lanacrost Chronicles, Sir Thomas de la Moor, Vita et Moors, Edwardi Secondi, there are plenty of them. The charge sheet was that Edward was personally incapable of governing. He allowed himself to be led and governed by others. He spent time on unsuitable work and occupations while neglecting the affairs of the kingdom. He killed and disinherited the great men of his kingdom. And he was incorrigible. He was basically without hope of improvement. And really, it doesn't get much better through the ages. In fact, his best time was a brief period after his death, when a few nutters decided that maybe he'd been a saint. But basically, down the ages, the criticism continues. There are different flavours, sure, commentators and historians who are fairer or more vitriolic, but there's no one out there really making a serious effort to say he was a good guy. 
the best people get are to say let's hang him for what he actually did do rather than what somebody wrote about. Let's not be too hard on the lad. Even our two touchstones of historical comment, the Ladybird, Kings and Queens of England and 1066 and all that, can't really find anything to add. Though I have to say the Ladybird book was particularly disappointing, missed a great chance to get the youth of the day engaged with a bit of honest scandal. For Sellers and Yeatman, Edward II was the incompetent king, which could of course be worse. In fact, the best compliment Edward gets is very much by way of a backhanded one. So the argument went up to the 1970s that by being a bad king, Edward actually did us all a favour. That if he'd carried on in the vein of Edward I, who knows where royal power would have ended up. That really is a very backhanded sort of compliment. More recently, the historical focus has moved away from the more traditional constitutional one and more on to emphasising the personal nature of the reign and the rivalries therein. In terms of interest in Edward II, well, there's plenty of that. Because if you want politics and intrigue and scandal, gentle listeners, you have come to the right place. Historians through the ages would speculate about the relationship between Edward and his favourites. Were they sexual? In the words of the song, were they in love or just good friends? Then there's the horrific murder, of course, and the whiff of mystery around his death. And there's the precedence of his death. Now, if he were some foreign Roman emperor or Turk or Byzantine in all those foreign and exotic places, well, you were used to kings and emperors and so on being killed in all sorts of horrible and inventive ways. But here in England, well, we don't do that sort of thing. Just wasn't cricket or just wasn't knucklebones or whatever. But after Edward received the poker, kings down the ages could be reminded that if they didn't behave they needed to be aware of the ironware around the fire and that the ultimate sanction was available. Which is exactly what people were to say to Richard II, for example. So, all very juicy. Before we launch in, I should also say a few words about my main sources and spread a little of the love. So, as a general survey of the period, I'm using Michael Presswich's Plantagenet England, which I have to warn you is a little dull. If you really want to know more about Edward's innards, as it were, the cunningly named Edward II by Seymour Phillips will help you see more of the detail. Arf, arf. It's good and balanced, but really not for the faint-hearted. There's a lot of it. A book I really did enjoy was The Three Edwards by Michael Prestwich. Really thoroughly good. Not too long, so gives a broad sweep of the interesting stuff and main themes. And then... The Greatest Traitor by Ian Mortimer, which is a life of Roger Mortimer. And as with every Ian Mortimer book, thoroughly readable and a lot of fun. Now then, there's a blog I should recommend called Edward II by someone called Catherine Warner. It really is amazing. Absolutely masses of information, incredibly well organised and signposted and beautifully written by a real historian rather than a hack in a shed. That's self-deprecation, by the way, fishing for compliments. You don't have to respond at all to that kind of neediness. Anyway, I'll put the link to Catherine's block up on the website on this week's episode, though it's already there on the website anyway, actually. As we said last week, there's a way of writing around Edward's early life that can make it seem as though Edward's failings were inevitable. So, you mentioned the rather feeble campaign in southwest Scotland that Edward led, 
and talk about the fact that when he could have been trying to get north to Glasgow, he was visiting monasteries instead. You talk about his couple of arguments with his dad, especially the banishing of Piers Gaveston. But really, we're clutching at straws. In fact, any sign in Edward's early years and upbringing that he was going to be a nightmare were there with hindsight. At the time, this is all normal prince stuff. And by golly, if you couldn't fall out with Edward I, then you were probably not human. At least he didn't do what his sister did and sneak off for an illegal secret marriage with some ne'er-do-well. Having said that, it's pretty clear that Prince Edward was one for the good life and giving it large. In his late teenage years and early twenties, there he is, a robust, tall, strong young man with shoulder-length blonde hair with a talent for horsemanship. He was extravagant and even better, generous to his friends. He had a love of jewellery. His manor at King's Langley, northwest of London, just off the M25, rang to the sound of music from a group of minstrels and fools that seemed to be always at his side. He had a penchant for a spot of gambling and anything exotic, such as the camel he kept in his garden, or indeed the lion he kept chained up in the yard. But look, why wouldn't you? There he was, rich, powerful, surrounded by a bunch of young blokes, the world his lobster, no real responsibilities. I mean, you would, wouldn't you? You'd have some fun. And there was a serious side to the lad. His personal chaplains were always in attendance. He frequently swung by and took in a mass. And meanwhile, his father did trust him to lead campaigns, to be regent while he was out of the country, though heavily supervised, no doubt. Really, Edward I might have known deep down that Edward was a wrong'un, but alternatively might well have had some confidence he'd turn out just fine. And so around him, like any young prince, Edward built a group of young men who had fun, feasting, singing, hunting, and although Edward himself didn't indulge, jousting. Now the thing about Edward's reign is, as we said last week, it emphasises in the most stark of ways that the Middle Ages were all about personalities. There is the argument, is there not, about whether personalities have any real impact on history, or if we are just buffeted around by the whims of economic and social forces we can't control and don't understand. Well, I'm sure we're all buffeted around by the whims of economic and social forces we can't control and don't understand, but I'm also sure that we individually have an impact. Most of Edward's problems in the end are not about the march of constitutional change, it's just because he can't help irritating the wrong people. So many of the people around him in his household in his youth were people that he would be irritating over the next 30 years. Last week, we mentioned that one of the men around him was Piers Gaveston. And now's the time to spend a bit more time on him and the royal relationship. Gaveston was the son of a Gascon knight who'd been used by Edward I as a hostage, nice, until he escaped and came to England with his son. There's a sort of low-born social status thing that often comes up sometimes in the story, but although the Gavisons are slightly obscure, and therefore not on the scale at all of a Mortimer or whatever, they are hardly below the social salt. Edward I was so impressed by the way that Piers conducted himself that in 1300 he added him to the prince's household as a squire. Over the next few years, Edward and Piers became the closest of friends probably there was something of hero worship about it. Gaveston was witty, rude. He was brave and a superb tournament fighter who made the old fogies eat dust. He was flamboyant and entertaining. In short, 
something of a hoot. This is purest speculation, of course, but you suspect that Gaveston helped Edward find his own character, helped him to have a personality that wasn't just what his father wanted. And with a father like Edward I, you could imagine how important that was. But somewhere in Edward's character was a bit of him that just went too far. You could say that he had a propensity for love and loyalty towards his friends, which is true, but there's something unhealthy about it. He was too needy, too reliant, too clingy. He lacked the strength of character to be self-reliant and create the bit of distance any leader needs. But as a young man without the responsibilities of kingship, you could see that Edward would find Gaveston a lot of fun. The nature of the relationship is often and even usually assumed to be physical and sexual, but really it's very difficult to know. The contemporaries made no such claim until the Bishop of Hereford was consciously trying to do him down in 1326. I don't know that I really care either way, to be honest, because what was clear is they loved each other. That Edward thought Gaveston was fab, his hero, he'd do anything for him. Somewhere along the line, they may have made a compact of brotherhood, just like Roland and Oliver in the Song of Roland. And from early on, Edward wants to reward his hero. In 1304, the prince persuaded his father to give Gaveston the wardship of Roger Mortimer, which was a very valuable gig, and most unusual for a squire of his age. In fact, as it happens, the Mortimer family then put their heads together and decided that they wanted their independence, and so they brought Gaveston out for 2,500 marks. Now, this is something like a student winning the lottery. I mean, Banzai. Gaveston was made and could give free rein to whatever fancy he liked, confident in the knowledge that there was more where that came from. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. So all of these men came together at the knighting ceremony we talked about last week. And then in the last year of Edward I's life, we get the incident of Gaveston's exile, as the prince tried to fill his friend's boots with even more gold. But when Edward I died and his son became king, there was really no reason for anyone to feel anything other than optimistic at the start of a new reign with a young man. I've no idea how Edward really felt about his father's death, but one thing I can bank on is that this particular cloud had a silver lining. And the silver lining in this case was that Edward was now the boss, the governor. He didn't have to worry about what the grumpy old men thought. He could be reunited with his exiled hero. And before you could say Jack Robinson, the letters had been sent and Gaveston was off back to England like a rat up a drain. Edward at the time was in Scotland and he had the great seals sent from London for the specific purpose of rewarding his mate. Because by the 6th of August, Gaveston had already been transformed into one of the most powerful earls in the country with the massive grant of the earldom of Cornwall. There's no indication at this point of any problems with the magnates. The grant was approved by the greatest and best in the land, the earls of Lincoln, Lancaster, Arundel, Hereford, Pembroke, Surrey and Richmond. But it is worth noting that it's a big thing. The earldom had, till then, been kept by members of the royal family. 
this was a big step up in an age that didn't publish long erudite reports on the value of social mobility. Eyebrows would have been tweaking from Cumnock to Kent. Gaveston was not the only person on Edward's mind. The other guy was Walter Langton, the old king's corrupt and favoured treasurer who Edward had clashed with as a prince. The wax was hardly dry on Gaveston's grant before Walter had been arrested by three knights, incarcerated in the Tower of London and his treasure seized. Now while the grant of the earldom of Cornwall would no doubt have raised eyebrows, the fall of Langton would have made every magnate of the land feel very happy indeed. Once the sense of euphoria had evaporated, Edward abandoned the war in Scotland and took off with the court back to London, because he had some problems to deal with. OK, so Edward I had been a big personality and without doubt can make an argument to be one of our most powerful kings. But he also left his son with the odd problem. The first was money, a debt of a cool 200,000 quid, the equivalent of several years of ordinary revenue. Plus, the authority and gravitas of the old king covered up the fact that there was a lot of discontent that had never been resolved from the crisis of 1297. The constant prizes or forced seizures of goods for the army, the constant taxation, these had left a sense of frustration. Still, in the wave of optimism of having a fresh new prince on the throne, Edward had a cakewalk through his first parliament and in October had a grant of taxation from a compliant parliament. Edward was now on a roll, lapping it all up, revelling in the opportunity to indulge his mates. And what better way to celebrate than to allow him to throw a big party? Which is what he duly did. Of course, in the medieval idiom, this was called a tournament. On the 2nd of December, a tournament was held in Gaveston's honour at Wallingford Castle, though Edward himself wasn't there. Gaveston was a young man with talent and the world at his feet. But did he but know it, he was also in a mighty dangerous situation. The magnates wouldn't take kindly to a new man eating at the table of power and patronage. He would need diplomatic skills, a certain amount of grace and a dash of humility to survive. Which is something of a joke. Very few people come out of Edward's reign with their reputation enhanced and there's no doubt that Gaveston had the cards stacked against him. Gaveston was without doubt a man with chutzpah, but unfortunately, Gaveston was also a man with an excess of chutzpah. Indeed, rivers of chutzpah which swept down to a sunless sea of chutzpah. Or put it another way, Gaveston had the diplomatic skills of a bulldozer and a level of arrogance that would make Piers Morgan blush. The Wallingford tournament is a case in point. A lesser man than Gaveston, but maybe one with a bit more common, would have had a quiet tournament. Maybe he'd have broken a quiet lance or two, then retired to the lists, feigning a headache. He'd maybe have complimented the Earl of Warren's elegant backhand, or Hereford's fine armour, or how good Arundel's backside looked in his coat of mail. But no, that would have required sensitivity. What Gaveston actually did was to make damn sure he could push the Earl's collective faces into the Oxfordshire mud. Gaveston himself was a renowned fighter, and in the words of a chronicler, he got together almost all the younger and harder knights of the kingdom whom persuasion and reward could bring together. At the tournament, the result was duly the defeat and humiliation of the earls. I have to say, it does sound rather fun, watching those no doubt almost equally arrogant young men, cream of the English nobility, flailing about in mud. 
but it wasn't wise. But at least it was presumably a fair fight. Gaveston's big mistake was to gloat and to revel in his opponent's humiliation. Warren, in particular, was livid. Arundel and Hereford weren't far behind. Apparently, the same thing then happened at another tournament at Faversham. The Earls were so steaming that they then threatened to kill Gaveston at the next one at Stepney, at which point Edward had the surprising good sense to step in and cancel it. However, in other ways, Edward showed less common sense, and rather than calming the situation down, poured oil on the fire. So, one of the other things that Edward I had kept from his son was his marriage. Edward II, quite rightly, knew that he had to sort out his relationship with France. He had been betrothed for some time to the daughter of the French king, Isabella, who was now twelve. Constant and acrimonious arguments had kept the deal from being completed while his father was alive, and now it needed tying down. So, he was going over to France, and while he was away, he would need a regent. On his way over there, Edward spent Christmas with his mate Gaveston in Kent. And while he was there, he made an astonishing announcement. The regent, while he was away, was to be none other than... Ta-da! Gaveston. Now, who was this parvenu, with no experience or family? Who was this arrogant young man to bypass relationships built up over generations? Now, the magnates were seriously worried. There's little doubt that there's a lot of self-interest here, but there's a serious point too. This new king was showing a complete inability to separate his private life and public responsibilities. Actually, it looks as though Gaveston didn't do anything outrageous while he was regent in terms of decisions. There were a number of accusations, such as plundering the royal treasure, for which there's really no evidence, and which look like malice or hindsight. The problem is again the way he did things. So, here's a quote. He adopted such a proud manner of bearing towards them that the earls coming before him to discuss business were forced to kneel in order to bring their reasons before him, because he did not value them, and did not heed the advice of the sage who said, A sudden reverse awaits those who, raised high in pride from poverty, know neither reason nor measure, and have no care. Meanwhile, despite a considerable amount of continuing argument and grumpiness from Philip the Fair, Edward acquitted himself pretty well in France in a difficult situation. And one of his talents does seem to be the ability to talk well in a personal situation, and he managed to get things sorted out. He did homage for Aquitaine, i.e. Gascony, and the marriage ceremony with Isabella was completed at last and passed off without incident. Which therefore brings us to another player in our drama, the beautiful Isabella of France. She will acquire the name of the She-Wolf of France in a couple of decades' time. What we'll have to decide over the next few weeks is whether this is just the usual bias of the medieval monk, where what is considered reasonable behaviour for a man is an outrage in a woman, or does she actually deserve the name? Either way, she came into the relationship with a reputation for exceptional beauty even bearing in mind that no medieval chronicler would be daft enough to ever contemplate saying anything other than positive about a royal bride. But also, she had a reputation for intelligence, which is rather more unusual. However, in the process of all this, Edward made something of a blunder in sending back Isabella's jewels for safekeeping to Gaveston. This was taken by Philip the Fair as an insult. 
he took it that Edward was giving away his daughter's treasure to his favourite. It was in all probability not meant this way at all, and was just a practical thing of sending her stuff back to somebody safe. Although, as we'll see, Edward is somewhat prone to the odd insensitivity where his wife is concerned, in fact, he and Isabella seem to work pretty well for the first decade or so. And you have to remember that Isabella is just a 12-year-old puppet at this point. Edward is 23. It's not surprising that he'd be seeing her just for the moment in a more avuncular way and looking after her effects. But sadly, Philip the Fair was a man who liked to take offence at any given opportunity. And this seemed like an ideal opportunity. So he joined the away team as far as Gaveston was concerned. As far as Edward is concerned, once again, if he'd had some sensitivity or genuine understanding of his change in status, he'd have found it very easy indeed to avoid the problem entirely. Now, while all this was going on, a group of magnates were having a highly significant conversation in Boulogne that marked the gathering of storm clouds. The meeting included the Bishop of Durham, the Earls of Lincoln, Surrey, Pembroke and Hereford, and there were a load of others too. They sealed a declaration which said they were bound to preserve the right of the king and the crown. Spot that? Not just preserve the rights of the king, preserve the rights of the crown as well. So, by implication, if the king was a dangerous dipstick, they might decide that their duty was to get rid of the king to support the rights of the crown instead. Actually, this Boulogne Declaration may well not have been intended to be aimed at Edward or even against Gaveston, but simply to signal that the problems with his father's reign needed to be dealt with. By February 1308, Edward was back in Westminster for his coronation. On the way, there's a further incident on the Gaveston front when Edward reportedly makes a bit of an arse of himself at Dover, rushing over to his friend Gaveston, covering him with kisses, going completely overboard with enthusiasm and ignoring his young bride. As so many incidents with Edward, we should take some of it with a pinch of salt. Going and greeting your mate doesn't necessarily imply ignoring your wife. It's possible Isabella wasn't actually there but arrived later, and the chroniclers vie with each other to put the most negative spin on every incident. And indeed, a bit of hugging and kissing was entirely par for the course in those days, as a greeting between the king and lord. But on the other hand, it does sound a little cringeworthy, doesn't it? I mean, you wouldn't know where to look with all that carry-on. You can imagine the poor earls looking at their feet, discussing the weather, while Gaveston and Edward whinnied over each other. Toes would have been curling, buttocks clenching. But if we're honest, the main problem was not that the king was carrying on with Gaveston. It was that he was carrying on only with Gaveston, and not his other great men. Anyway, I think I'll leave us at the dock at Dover with Edward and Gaveston indulging themselves. In two weeks' time, because next week is a weekend off, we'll have Edward's coronation and see how young Gaveston's career unfolds. My grateful thanks again to everyone who has commented in iTunes or by email or on the website or joined the Facebook group. Very much appreciated, as always. And actually, I also have to make an apology because someone wrote in and corrected me about William Wallace. William Wallace was not, as I said, done to death at Tyburn, but was apparently done to death near Smithfield in London. So very sorry about that. And thank you very much for whoever wrote in. I've forgotten who it was. Okay, so good luck, everyone, and have a great couple of weeks.